1: Hello everyone, welcome to Adams
0: on Agriculture. Thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate you letting us be part of your day. This happens to be National Popcorn Day. I love popcorn. Did you know the state of Nebraska produces more popcorn than any other state? That's according to USDA. About 250 million pounds per year. That's about a quarter of all the popcorn produced annually in this country. So, Enjoy some popcorn on this National Popcorn Day. We're going to be talking today about the markets with Joe Camp with Comstock Investments and continue our focus on the biodiesel industry. Their virtual annual conference is going on this week. We will be talking with Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board, and Chad Stone, Chairman of the Board for the National Biodiesel Board. That's all coming up later on today's program. But as we get ready for inauguration day coming up tomorrow went to talk with uh, someone who um, can give us some perspective on what it's like to start in a new administration and some key positions such as at usda steve sinski joins us he is the ceo of the american soybean association who just left the post of deputy secretary of agriculture steve welcome back to aoa good to have you with us uh just kind of your thoughts what's that like when you step into a job and uh uh, President-elect Biden has picked uh, your successor now uh, to be the deputy s- secretary. Uh, take us back to when you started in that position. What that is like? Uh, what, especially when you first start out, trying to get you know y- your head around everything and uh, and and get things off and going.
2: Well, thanks, Mike. It's great to be with you again. And uh, certainly, when you're selected for a post like that, and uh, Dr. Jewel Bronow has uh, been selected as the deputy secretary. Uh, You know, a lot of it it comes with preparation, preparation to understand the, the breadth and the depth of USDA, trying to get up to speed on the issues. Of course, there's the technical parts of it that, that go on behind the scenes that sometimes can take months. And that's, you know, a complete FBI background investigation needs to take place uh that takes some time for the fbi to complete that so that they can uh uh her nomination can be formally submitted to the senate committee to the senate uh then the senate committee on agriculture will need to schedule or they'll hold a staff level interview with her um and then following that would be the full uh would be the senate uh committee on agriculture hearing and then reporting to the floor. And then uh, the Senate has to take action to formally uh, uh, approve the, the nomination and confirm her as deputy
3: secretary.
0: Most of us, I'm sure, have no idea of how many different things USDA uh, is responsible for, the complexity uh, of, the, uh, of the agency and of these positions such as deputy secretary. Kind of give us an idea of how broad a scope that is.
2: It really is. It, it, USDA touches upon, you know, everything uh, really and, and almost everything that every American does, uh, whether it is the nutrition that is provided and the dietary guidelines that are developed, uh, whether it is the uh, the food assistance mm-hmm. that's provided there. Uh, whether it, of course, is our, our meat and poultry inspection, our our commodity grading of so many different commodities, fruits, vegetables, as as well as meat products, um, and and their marketing, um, and then, of course, a lot of what, uh, of course, we're farmers and listeners are familiar with, uh, of course, are our farm safety net programs, our lending programs, um, and the support for farmers. Uh, But then it continues on from there for rural communities, sewer and water loans, everything. And then uh, also going on, of course, to our conservation programs. And then the U.S. Forest Service is part of USDA. That's something that I think a lot of people don't realize that, uh, you know, uh, taking care of our uh, millions of acres of national forest is USDA. They're in charge of the U.S. Forest Service.
0: You worked uh, for Secretary Perdue, who spent a lot of time out on the road. He was always traveling, it seemed, and uh, that's what he enjoyed doing, out talking with folks. I always had the the impression that you were back taking care of the the shop, that you were in charge of uh, keeping things going there back in Washington, D.C. What's that like, that relationship, how important that is between the deputy and the secretary?
2: It is really important, and, and you're right, Mike. Secretary Purdue. I think that, that certainly was one of his great strengths is being out on the road connecting with farmers and ranchers, and he did just a tremendous job of that. And the deputy's job is to serve as uh, not only to help on the – assist the secretary on the policy matters, and certainly I did that, and some of the key decisions that were made – uh, whether that's implementation of the Farm Bill or uh, the uh, the Market Facilitation Payment Program, uh, our Agriculture Trade Program, the Coronavirus Food Assistance Programs, things like that, but really is to serve as the Chief Operating Officer and and make sure that USDA is running correctly. We're moving forward. It's running efficiently. That the trains are running on time. And so with the the secretary on the road so much that means that the deputy secretary better be sure to make sure that those cha- trains are running on mm-hmm. time
0: well it's it's a time of transition and when we look at it from an agricultural standpoint the, this is a critical time and there'll be a lot of decisions we've we know there'll be some changes made what are your thoughts for agriculture during this time of transition
2: you know, I think it's uh, very, very hopeful. I think it's a good time. I mean, I think we're, the agriculture is well served with uh, Secretary Vilsack, of course, uh, having served as Secretary of Agriculture for eight years. He knows uh, USDA programs. He doesn't have to take time to learn them. He, he uh, understands the importance of trade. Uh, he will be able to really hit the ground running I think the another advantage there that I think is, you know, secretary Vilsack, I think has a very close relationship, uh, with, uh, president president elect Biden. And that bodes well, I think for agriculture, that when you have those, those key issues that come up and you have decisions that have to be made in the white house and, and possibly be taken to the president, it really helps that you have a Secretary of Agriculture that has a strong uh, relationship with with the president, uh, because I think that bodes well for U.S. agriculture. Uh, similarly, uh, Dr. Dr. Brona uh, comes to USDA if she, uh, upon her confirmation. Um, you know, she has served as a as a the Farm Service Agency state director in Virginia during the Obama administration. She's been uh, a dean of agriculture at uh, uh, Virginia State University and so knows the importance of extension and research uh, and teaching and 4-H. And then, of course, now being in charge of Virginia uh, Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, she brings all of that experience.
0: Well, Steve, thank you for giving us uh, some perspective on this as someone who has gone through it. We really appreciate it, and uh, good to talk with you again. Take care.
2: Great
0: to be with you, Mike. Thank you. Steve Sinsky, CEO of the American Soybean Association and past, the immediate past, Deputy Secretary of Agriculture at USDA. All right. We talk markets next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Atoms on Agriculture, Michael Formica joins us, Assistant Vice President, Domestic Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. Michael, thanks for joining us. Tell us about this new campaign.
3: So we've launched a new campaign yesterday called Farming Today for Tomorrow, and the goal and the purpose is pork producers for 50 years or more have really been incredibly progressive and in leading the way in improvements not only to the industry and how we're raising the animals, but... There are benefits from all of those improvements, with the direct focus on the environment and environmental improvement. We've got much reduced uh, water quality issues. Got complete control of our manure. We we keep adopting and developing new conservation methods, for soil conservation purposes. We are constantly reducing our air emission profile. And then through all of this, there's a you know there's a real co-benefit on the on the climate. Side. for
0: the information important to rule America join us on Adams on agriculture
1: the landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information while major news outlets show decreasing credibility your local farm radio station still shows strong marks in a recent survey farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets farm radio continues to be transparent honest and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting.
0: Join us every Tuesday for A Round the Table brought to you by CHS where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Every week we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. So be sure to tune in each Tuesday or
4: visit CooperativeOwnership.com to learn more. Sometimes life is wonderful and sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At private health care we provide the peace of mind you deserve with private health care you'll get the coverage you want and health care you need if your employer doesn't supply health care coverage and you don't qualify for medicare or medicaid you need to give us a call right now private health care is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical dental vision and even prescription coverage when life comes at you unexpectedly
1: Well, let's talk
0: markets with Joe Camp, Director of Managed Programs for Comstock Investments. Joe, good to talk with you. I would guess uh, your conversations uh, with farmers the day, these days a little bit different than they were not that many uh, weeks and months ago. I mean, everything has just changed with the markets. And uh, while that's exciting, there are some big decisions and, and sometimes difficult decisions uh, farmers have to make in a, even a strong market like this.
5: Yeah, good morning, Mike. There is so much to talk about as we leave 2020 and start this new calendar year. We just had that really important crop report last week, and it kind of set the numbers for the previous marketing year and then starts to get us thinking a lot more about the season ahead. We don't have numbers yet for the row crops here in the U.S., but we do have you know, a look at what's next for South America, of course, talking a lot about – growers and and their crops in Brazil and Argentina and we're thinking ahead towards what these prices will eventually say for our uh, next planning efforts and and marketing too so yeah a lot to chat about
0: one of the factors in this market run-up has been timing of that South American crop we wait to see but there's been so much speculation just how big it'll be Uh, but what we do know is it's a later crop than usual, which has extended uh, our window of being able to sell before they move in and really take over in the buying cycle. So that's given this a little bigger window of opportunity, hasn't it?
5: Yeah, absolutely. And that's probably exactly where we should start on a day like this, where we come in and we see soybeans uh, taking a move lower. And I think that being a direct product and part of what we're hearing out of South American weather, having
6: improved,
5: And we're seeing that uh, the soybeans, while delayed, as you allude to, uh, are almost ready. And so just that realization and the talking more about a Brazilian crop being ready to fill the pipeline, uh, that's being somewhat of a pressure on markets, uh, a reversal of what it had been, such a boost, and something that I think longer term it can still be, a source of support when we talk about delayed starting shipments for soybeans first of all, but then next, that delayed start for the Brazilian second corn crop, which is their most exported crop, the safrina crop, that comes on, if too late, maybe could have some yield issues um, you know, later this season. Still a long way to go, and again, a big soybean crop coming online, but it has been a tailwind and uh, just something we're thinking a lot about in a, a market like today is when we see that weekend showers come through in a way that uh, has us thinking about the Brazilians for sure. So if they do have a big soybean crop, how much
0: uh, downward pressure does that put on the market, given where there's still a tight stock situation, tighter than we've seen in some time? right exactly it's
5: about um will they have a sustained export customer like they did a year prior in china of course they will china's uh, much of an appetite as they have again for soy protein as they rebuild that uh, uh swine herd um after african swine fever we've got a lot of uh, demand still in this market And it has been for some time now only the U.S. and for all intents and purposes that has had available supply uh, to give to the market and to feed buyers like China. Uh, But soon with Brazil ready to take that to market, it will put some pressure on prices, but only so much as China goes back to the Brazilians to source those needs. And yet to be determined is whether price will dictate that they should or Uh, values, I think, pretty well on par with Brazil's right now. The currency terms, though, have been in our favor recently with the dollar sliding back. And then the next question, of course, is about uh, politics uh, for sure and how will China uh, continue to want to fulfill or not meet those terms of the phase one trade deal uh, yet to be determined. But more to be known, I think, over these next couple of weeks, it should be, though, some pressure that we see this big Brazilian crop coming online uh, enough today to take, I think, about a quarter out of the soybean market again, I think the primary driver so far. We're talking with Joe Camp
0: with Comstock Investments. So when you've had a market going up, 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 and then you have a down day like this, then the big question is, does that mean we've seen the top and it's going to work its
5: way down now? What do you think? We've seen these dips bought. And uh, for now, we're going to stick with what we see on the charts, which is an uptrend for ag futures and a broader, bullish storyline for ags that includes investors looking for extra exposure to commodities as an inflation hedge. Uh, Low interest rates, a weaker dollar continue to attract new investment. But we'll look at days like this as the inevitable uh, sort of um, settling down of of what has been a volatile upmarket, Uh, So I think this is something that we'll likely see bought into by, again, a a speculative crowd managed money that is as bullish uh, in this space as they have ever been. So until we have a major break on the charts, one that's bigger than what we're seeing today, frankly, um, or uh, any major new news, I, again, don't think we should change what we know to be um, a bullish trend right now for ag features.
0: We talk a lot about soybeans and they've been of course driving the market but uh, especially after the uh, report last week now cases can be made on their own for corn and wheat and we've seen them uh, uh, react to those numbers and uh, uh, seemingly not just following soybeans but have a strong case to
5: make on their own that's right if we talk about uh, the u.s having had the source of supply in soybeans but now the brazilians are bringing a new crop online that same story isn't there yet for wheat uh, and corn. And we're seeing that, that the U S while we're abundantly supplied or at least comfortably, uh, with a carry out now reduced to one and a half billion bushels last week. Uh, that's still enough to, you know, uh, be about a 10% stocks to use ratio here domestically. But, It's that the U.S. has ownership of that corn and not a lot of other countries do at the moment. It's because we still have favorable currency terms uh, uh, for the dollar that helps support the corn and grain trade that we do see that potential still for now corn and wheat to take leadership on uh, export performance, particularly corn, Um, as, again, we wait now for the next crop, which is that Brazilian second crop, which, again, brings into question about whether... Or we can talk about Argentina or, say, Ukraine and these back-and-forth tax issues and all of the uncertainty. We're still the major, um, uh, you know, trusted exporter of of corn right now, and that bodes well for the future.
0: A lot of speculation about acres uh, for this coming year here in the U.S., and many talking about a pretty even split between corn and soybeans.
5: Uh, What are you seeing ahead? Just naturally, the way the rotation, I think, will go favors soybeans. Price certainly has favored soybeans for some time. That's started to change a little bit. Certainly on a day like today, we have the grains holding up a little bit better, and maybe that, in part, is forward thinking about the planning expectations, which currently have corn down a little bit and soybeans up. Again, I think I go back to largely the, the the rotational issue, and, and think about corn on corn acres in uh, central Illinois and in Iowa and some of the really top-yielding states that will just naturally move over to soybeans. But having said that, we know about the fall field work, um, input prices having been, um, you know, before recently, pretty favorable to corn. So I think, you know, earlier estimates that we've been working on corn down a million acres Uh, soybeans up a a million and a half or so and and maybe rising uh, on both of those just a little bit because the prices you know that's a good start for now yeah
0: input costs kind of working their way up too but um, perhaps a lot of the inputs uh, for this year's crop uh, have already been uh, paid for already booked so that may ease that somewhat
5: Yeah, it sounds like uh, growers uh, did a good job of of forward contracting on a lot of inputs or it's just that time of year, right, where a lot of the decisions have been made. These planning uh, outlooks have been decided. Uh, But the outlook, as you mentioned, um, you know, maybe a little bit different coming into the new year because we see the energy markets perking up. And that's just part of the broad storyline that we see with not just grains, but commodities as a whole. And that includes the inputs that are also commodities, right, that that go into the mix. We're seeing um, a bit of a, a tidal shift here for the space.
0: Well, it's going to be an interesting 2021. Hopefully interesting, you know, 2020 was interesting, but not so much in a good way most of the time. So hopefully this will be a good interesting here in 2021.
5: We feel that way, that we can have that, although you know it doesn't mean we're not making prudent sales recommendations and wanting some hedge protection, but still having a better outlook for this year ahead. Very good.
0: Joe, thanks a lot. We'll talk again soon. Take care. As always, thanks. Joe Camp, Director of Managed Programs for Comstock Investments. Well, the National Biodiesel Virtual Conference going on this week. We're going to talk more about the National biodiesel board uh, activities and uh, the industry overall here in 2021 still a lot of optimism we'll talk about some of the uh, issues that will impact the biodiesel industry this year with kurt Kavarik, vice president federal affairs for the national biodiesel board up next here on a.o.a hi this is mike adams you're listening to a.o.a Adams on agriculture Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up.
2: Carbon monoxide is a colorless, odorless gas that can be fatal. Don't use anything indoors that burns fuel, such as gasoline-powered generators, camp stoves and lanterns, or charcoal grills. Opening doors and windows or using fans isn't enough. Have your vents and chimneys checked to make sure water heater and gas furnace exhausts aren't blocked. If you feel sick, dizzy, or weak while using a generator, get to fresh air right away. From the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency.
8: You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen with this market update. Well, it's a wide range of trade in grains so far on this Tuesday morning as we come back from the long holiday weekend. Another big drop in palm oil has caused the soy complex to trade aggressively lower here so far this morning, with soybeans down 20 to 28 cents across the board. Cord futures are down moderately. Meantime, wheat futures are holding on to moderate strength as Paris wheat surged as we work through our overnight trade. Now, again, looking at this market. Corn hovering just below the highs. Ukraine is reported to be contemplating corn export restrictions and the Argentine government weighs higher export taxes there. So corn really not Moving one way or another, we're just a little bit lower so far here uh, this morning. Now, looking at the weather map, that's another factor we're watching as South American weather. We're starting to get some more rains in some of those dry areas. We'll definitely be keeping our eye on those forecasts moving forward and how that affects our market trade. Also, we're going to be looking for the USDA's weekly report of grain export inspections due out at 10 a.m. Taking a look at some of the market numbers as they stand. March corn down three and three quarters at 527 to three quarters. May corn down four and a half at 530 at a quarter. March soybeans down 27 and three quarters at 1389. May beans down 28 at 1386 at three quarters. March bean meal down 750 a ton at 455.70. March soybean oil down 72 points at 41.13. March Chicago wheat four higher at 679 and a half. March Kansas City winter wheat up seven and a quarter at 650 at a quarter. March Minneapolis spring wheat 4 higher at 647 at a quarter. Mixed action in livestock so far this morning. February live cattle down 12 at 11265. Feeder cattle for January 7 higher 13465. February lean hogs down 90 at 6702. The Dow Jones up 79 points. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen.
0: the national biodiesel conference is going on this week a virtual event this year like so many are we still can focus though on the industry a lot to talk about with kurt Kavarik, vice president federal affairs for the national biodiesel board kurt wish we were all together face to face uh, for the conference but uh um, at least it can be done virtually how's that going
9: so far so good mike glad to be with you and i i couldn't agree with you more i wish we were all in uh Fort Worth, Texas. It feels feels like forever ago when we were in uh, Tampa a year ago. Uh, Hard to believe that we've gone almost a year of of, uh, adjusting to life in a virtual setting, but uh, I think it's going great. We've got a couple hundred uh, attendees uh, very close to where we would be if we were in person. We had a a nice reception last night that was virtual, and I, I have to tell you, Mike, there's a lot of optimism in the industry right now. A lot of folks are uh, you know, seeing the markets that are being developed in in the Northeast with with bioheat on the West Coast with carbon policies, and I think they're they're hopeful with a new incoming administration in Congress that uh, will have a bit more certainty in terms of federal policies that the industry can rely on and and build on uh, in the years to come.
0: A lot of focus will be on EPA and the incoming EPA administrator Michael Regan. I know you're hoping for. Uh, a better situation there. It's been a rocky one with uh, Andrew Wheeler, uh, Scott Pruitt before that, uh, in handling of the RFS, and a lot of questions remain there. Though, how will this go? Um, there are legal battles still to be fought, and uh, a lot, a lot of questions regarding this. But you are hopeful.
9: Yeah, we've got a, we've got about 24 hours to get through uh, with this administration. We're hopeful that there aren't any um, negative actions taken that would undermine the renewable fuel standard particularly uh, the granting of any additional small refiner exemptions. We are disappointed that uh, the Supreme court-, court chose to hear the arguments in the appeal of a of a 10th Circuit decision that essentially shut down those small refiner exemptions. But you're, you're right once we you know this administration is going to have a lot on its plate and We've had some initial conversations that, uh, you know, the the signals that we're getting are positive. They recognize that there's a lot to do and a lot uh, of course correction in terms of implementation of the renewable fuel standard. But, you know, I would say across the industry, there's optimism not just with respect to the federal policies, but what's happening at the corporate levels across the the country in terms of wanting to decarbonize and reduce their uh, greenhouse gas footprint and the same is true at, at the state level. So the the conference is gonna provide us an opportunity to have that uh, wholesome conversation with our members and, and other uh, supporters of the industry to talk about emerging markets in, in bioheat in the Northeast, to talk about developing markets as a result of state uh, uh, policies to, to decarbonize. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity, while it, it, it feels like the industry is, uh, you know, most heavily dependent on federal policy, you know, there might be a shift in that. It, it, it might be, you know, because of the uncertainty in the renewable fuel standard, we might be heading to a point where state or corporate policies uh, that can be put in place and it can be stable and predictable might be more important to the industry. I'm not saying we're there today, but but that's part of the optimism that I, I feel uh, with this conference coming together.
0: We're talking with Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Kurt, I've mentioned this several times. I think that one of the big questions that we'll we'll wait to see answered with this new administration and a new Congress that obviously is going to focus on climate issues is whether or not the biofuels industry that we have in place, uh, will it be looked upon as part of the solution or will it be pushed aside to go off in other directions, whether it's uh, battery or electric or whatever they want to push for, or in a green movement, where does the biofuels industry fit into this? And what will they, um, where will they put biofuels in, in their plan moving forward? That, that's a key question.
9: Sure. Absolutely. You, you've hit the nail on the head here. Uh, what's, what's the motivation of this administration? We know throughout the campaign, uh, with cabinet picks, with signals that, uh, this administration has, has sent that uh, climate policy is top of mind for them. Obviously Uh, COVID relief, both on the health side and on the economic side, is important. But but soon after that is addressing climate change. Uh, You know, I'd like to say that, you know, we're uh, cautiously optimistic by some of the personnel announcements that have been made. Uh, The EPA administrator nominee, uh, Regan, doesn't have a a strong track record either way. The president-elect himself made positive comments on the campaign trail about uh, his disagreement with how the Trump administration handled uh, implementation of the RFS, particularly around small refiner exemptions. So I would anticipate early on they'll send a signal both on how they intend to greatly reduce the use of the small refiner exemptions, how they plan to account for those lost gallons, particularly in the renewable volume obligation rulemaking that's going to have to be done uh, very quickly because it's the statutory deadline has passed, November 30th. So. And to to, to get to your point, um, you know, I think there is a motivation among some to go all-in on electric vehicles. But that's where our job is to to educate, to demonstrate uh, how difficult it might be to electrify in some of these sectors, particularly where biodiesel plays a a huge role in in heavy-duty trucking, uh, perhaps sustainable aviation fuel and others. Very difficult to electrify sectors, and we can demonstrate the carbon reductions that we're we're providing today. And I would hope that they would recognize that it makes a lot more sense to support, to advance, to grow all uh, energy sources that can help to decarbonize. There's gotta be some uh, recognition of the decarbonization benefits that take place and are taking place in 2021 versus electrifying the economy that may happen in 2050. There's a lot of talk about how time is of the essence. It's imperative that we, we take action today. And that's that fits right in with what our industry is doing. We exist today. Uh, if you look at California as an, as an example, they had hoped to electrify their whole economy. It's developed a lot slower than they wish. And the fact of the matter is biodiesel is uh, an enormous uh, success story in California in helping them reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So, uh, you know, it's a little bit Uh, unique for us as a, you know, an ag-based association and industry that is now diversifying, getting into carbon policies, uh, particularly on the coast. But it's a a natural fit for us. And uh, I I think at the end of the day, we'll we'll be successful. And that's why I'm also optimistic, along with our members.
0: And you mentioned what states are doing. Uh, You talk about California, uh, really on both coasts, but we're starting to see it in the Midwest too, aren't we? More coalitions and more work done on this front.
9: Absolutely. There are ongoing conversations. Obviously, Iowa has incentives. Minnesota has a mandate. Illinois has incentives. There's talk about uh, Missouri as well. I think it's a recognition that, um, you know, it's a product that's grown in the heartland for the most part from excess uh, soybean oil. It's a value add. Why not have Midwestern consumers uh, benefit and uh, benefit local local ag economies? It makes perfect sense. Um, you know, I, I as a federal policy person, I look at it as, uh, you know, belt and suspenders. I'm out here in Washington trying to get the most favorable policies we can on the national level. And we've got a team of folks across the country working on, uh, state level policies that help as well. And I think, um, the, the the state of Iowa might even be considering something more aggressive. So it, it, it's all great news. It's all a recognition of, you know, what the fuel has to add in terms of economic, uh, benefit and environmental environmental benefit and i I look forward to uh what the what the future holds
0: and even as we've talked before kurt even with the challenges of 2020 the fact you had the biodiesel tax credit was certainly it's always important but it was extremely important last year with all the other challenges
9: no doubt it was absolutely a lifeline for the industry given the economic headwinds um it's it's unfortunate it it takes away a year of that uh, opportunity of that tax credit to really grow the industry. But I, I fear that without that tax credit, we wouldn't have had much of an industry uh, here in January, 2021. So I go to bed and and thank the lucky stars that we were able to get that done in December of 2019 for such a long period of extension, huge debt of gratitude to our champions on the Hill and namely in Senator Grassley and getting that done. Uh, And you're, you're right. And we've got, we've got stable, uh, trade policies, preventing the importation of uh, subsidized and dumped product, which allows our uh, producers to compete um, w- without having unfair imports. So those two, and with the, the uncertainty in the RFS, uh, those two have helped the industry stay alive and, and be able to grow. And I hope that we can have certainty in all three uh, ar- areas of federal uh, impact. That would, that would be, uh, I would rest easy if that were the case.
0: Yeah, we kind of thought we would get that in 2020. didn't all come true, but uh, I think you've made a good case that uh, even with the challenges of 2020, there were a lot of uh, uh, good things happened for the biodiesel industry last year that point and bode well, I think, well for the future as this industry continues to grow. A lot of key developments, though, with this time of transition. We'll see how it all plays out. Kurt, as always, good to talk with you. Thank you very much.
9: Glad to be with you, Mike. Thank you. Have a great week.
0: Take care. You too, Kurt Kovarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Again, the biodiesel annual conference going on this week, a virtual event. They have a lot to talk about. Uh, The challenges, yes, but the opportunities. And there looks to be a lot of opportunities for biodiesel moving forward. We'll talk about that next with the chairman of the National Biodiesel Board. Chad Stone will join us. Give us kind of a, a state of the industry report, if you will. After the challenges of 2020, where does the biodiesel industry stand as far as plants around the country, and how does he feel about the the future for the industry? That's coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up.
7: Do you know how to keep food safe at home? Clean,
4: separate, cook, and chill.
7: The easy lessons of clean, separate, cook, and chill will help you protect your family and be food safe. Let's talk about how to really cook. First, you can't tell it's done by how it looks. Use a food thermometer. Then, always stir, rotate the dish, and cover food when microwaving to prevent cold spots where bacteria can survive. Fast cooking should still be safe cooking. And bring sauces, soups, and gravies to a rolling boil when reheating. Even for the most experienced cooks, the improper heating and preparation of food means bacteria can survive. Food safety risks at home are more common than most people think. The USDA is your partner in being food safe. Clean,
4: separate, cook
7: and chill. For more information, visit BeFoodSafe.gov or call 1-888-MP-Hotline.
1: Call 800-955-4538 now for your free author submission kit. Again, for your free author submission kit, call 800-955-4538. That's 800-955-4538. Your road to fame and fortune could very well start with this simple phone call. Call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 for your free author submission kit.
0: Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Kurt Blade, Senior Vice President, Ag Services for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Finally, we have a big market rally to talk about and I'm sure will impact, uh, if not now, eventually the sales numbers. These are the numbers from December. The rally, of course, has gone on since then, but was already being felt at that time. Are we starting to see any reflection in, in your sales numbers yet?
3: As we look at the December numbers for tractors and combine sales throughout the 2020, I think one word to describe the whole thing is surprised in that numbers exceeded expectations throughout the entire year. We finished the year 2020 with really some strong numbers across the tractor segment, very much driven by the under 40 horsepower tractors, but really saw some strength across all tractors in the month of December. And that carried on to sort of the whole year being above expectations and quite a bit above where we were this time last
7: year.
0: For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Our guest today is Riley Buss, a data engineer at CHS, discussing how the global digital supply chain is changing everything from fertilizer availability to grain drop-off. Riley, how is data being used to connect grain from farm to customer?
3: The way that we're using data to connect grain from farm to customer is really in our digital supply chain. So our digital supply chain, when you think of our our grain supply chain at CHS, grain is being harvested right on the farmer-owner field. And then they're going to be delivering that to one of our local cooperatives that we have the country. From there, it's going to be transported by rail or truck to one of our river terminals, then turned over there to a barge, then turned over to a gateway port, then turned over to an ocean vessel to finally reach this destination port, and then to be delivered by whatever mode of transportation to its customer. And that's a very long and very massive supply chain. And data is being captured every step along the way. And it's very large and terabytes of data being traded daily. How do co ops use that information to forecast grower needs? If you look at like the agronomy input side we have a very awesome yield point specialist crew that will work with farmers on creating awesome farm plans. And uh, with all the farmers um, also doing a lot of prepayments and bookings, we have a good idea of what the demand is going to be for crop nutrients and crop protection products for the upcoming year, as well as what we can use uh, get information from what is going to be the predicted weather uh, for the next seasonality that's coming up. And that really helps us figure out what is going to be the demand for these products. Then we're able to use the, the same things that we do on the, on the grain supply chain of uh, that whole uh, logistical purpose of all the data being created and we can tie that back and where are we going to procure like urea for example when are we going to need it at our local country ops operations facilities and that way we can make sure it's there on time for our farmers to use that's
0: riley Buss, a data engineer at chs thanks for joining us around the table learn more about the benefits of co-op ownership from chs at cooperativeownership.com you're listening to A O A Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around
1: the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams.
0: Well, again, ordinarily, I would have been broadcasting this week from the National Biodiesel Conference, but of course, it is a virtual event this year. So we continue our focus on the biodiesel industry. And joining us now is the National Biodiesel Board Chairman, Chad Stone. Chad, thank you for joining us. Uh, we've been talking a lot of people in the biodiesel industry. And even with the, the challenges of uh, 2020, there seems to be a lot of optimism for the future for this industry.
6: Yeah, thank you Mike and good morning. We do have a lot of optimism for our industry. We're doing great things. We're making a great fuel that is uh, you know, clean energy. It helps uh for air quality and you know, one of the one of the things that we saw last year was you know, even though gasoline demand dropped so dramatically and jet fuel dropped dramatically, you know, we still had a planting in a harvest. We still had people moving goods around the country and all those engines are using diesel and more and more they're blending more biodiesel and renewable diesel into the fuel stream. And that has been good for us because, you know, we were very lucky that uh, our demand last year was was relatively flat year over year, whereas all other sectors of fuel demand uh, were down. Um, so yeah, we, we do have reason to be thankful and optimistic that people are starting to pay attention to what we're doing. We're making a great, uh, uh, fuel, a great clean energy that's uh, good for air quality. Give us a lay of
0: the land as far as production is concerned. Uh, did you lose any plants this past year? I know some had to kind of slow down or idle, you know, pull back, uh, some, but where are you now here in 2021?
6: Yeah. In 2019, we lost a few plants that didn't come back. And, you know, we waited two years while the tax credit was lapsed and it got reinstated in December of 2019. Uh, 2020 with the tax credit back, you know, it's, we started the year really good with really, uh, flush margins. Um, but then at the beginning of 2020, before we knew it, there was a Saudi arabian Russian oil price war where, it wiped out the price of, uh, energy prices, oil prices dropped quite quite a bit and diesel prices dropped well over a dollar. And so that, that really cut into margins. And then on the heels of that, we got, uh, hit hard, uh, with the pandemic and, and fuel demand at that point. Um, so it did tighten things up. Uh, we, we have lost a couple of plants, uh, but there is a lot of talk about new entrants wanting to produce renewable diesel and uh, adding to adding to the uh, uh, the production side. This year, I think, or, or 2020, I think people are projecting that we, as an industry, including imports, did close to three billion gallons, which is you know, as much as we've ever been able to do.
0: Well, I know there's a optimism, we've talked a lot about it, about the opportunities that may lie ahead with this push on climate issues, and the certainly clean air will be a big part of that, and your industry is, uh, is positioned to um, really take big steps forward. Uh, you just got to make that case to the powers that be, right, As in this time of transition to say, don't overlook us, we're, we're already here and already doing what you say you're trying to achieve.
6: Absolutely. We are clean energy now. Our fuel, depending on the feedstock you use, is 65% to 90% lower emissions than uh, as compared to diesel. And it's here right now in commercial scale. You don't have to wait for 10 years or 30 years to uh, do some other things and wait for different technologies and wait for market penetration. Our fuel is available at commercial scale today and it's being used you know, for example, I think it was last quarter or the quarter before California's diesel consumption is like 23% biomass based diesel. So they've already started to massively displace uh, diesel with biodiesel and renewable diesel. And there's no reason why we can't do that in a lot of other parts of the country. That's just happens to be the one that provides the most uh, premium incentive market uh, for our fuel. And so a lot of, a lot of field goes out to California and Oregon and, and Canada is starting to follow suit as well.
0: Well, let, let me ask you about that. I want to talk about that. That's certainly good news, but what about the Midwest where much of it is produced? Uh, what about usage in the Midwest?
6: Usage in the Midwest is very strong and that's where it started. I would say it's generally throughout the year, 10 to 20% blends pretty consistently. And, you know, as you know, you know, most of most of diesel is used by 18-wheel long-haul trucking, freight, moving things around, construction equipment, uh, agricultural equipment. And so, you know, we've got the thoroughfares that go through the Midwest to get from coast to coast, and you get got a lot of 18-wheelers. You know, places like Illinois and Iowa and Minnesota a lot of times have 20% blends, and when it's uh, colder maybe sometimes they go down to like a 5% blend, but in like Iowa, for example, there's a tax incentive. If you use 11% or more, you get a, a differential excise tax. And so there's lots of incentives. And of course the feedstock is really abundant in the Midwest. And because of that, we're able to optimize logistics by, you know, sourcing it, sourcing the feedstock local and selling the fuel local. That way you're not giving away all your margin to the logistics
0: to get it to a different market. So some would say, you know, these are not good times for the, uh, the fuel industry, but uh, I think it's a, a unique time for the biofuels industry as a whole and really some great opportunities ahead. I know you're making that case, and uh, good to hear uh, that there is a lot of optimism moving forward, and we hope that will be realized. Chad, good to talk with you. Thank you for your thoughts, uh, giving us some thoughts and perspective on the industry. We appreciate it.
6: Yeah, thank you for the time, Mike. I really appreciate
0: it. Take care. Chad Stone, chairman of the National Biodiesel Board, their virtual conference continuing this week. We'll have more from that conference uh, coming up on tomorrow's program as we look at the... the opportunities and the impact for the of the biodiesel industry. Also, we'll talk tomorrow, of course, Inauguration Day about the transition going on. We'll get a report from Washington, D.C. And also look at developing weather patterns, both here and in South America. We'll be talking about that as well. Hope you'll join us. Thanks for being with us today. Stay safe, everyone. You're listening to AOA. AOA.